theyeshiva.net. If you didn't hear the first class on this mimer, please try to review it because it's really the halachic and Talmudic basis of everything that we're going to be discussing in this mimer. And uh, the main point that was made in one sentence is that the Torah says in Parashas Re'i, you should only eat matzahs on six days, for six days, even though elsewhere it says seven days. And the Chazal deduced from this the eighth principle in the methodologies and formulas of Torah learning, Dover Shahaya Bechlal, that the seventh day redefines our understanding of the first six days. Just as the seventh day, it's clearly a voluntary option to eat matzah, not an obligation. That hence the Torah singles out six days. This redefines our relationship to the first six days, that it's also voluntary, as explained at length in our first class, Monday morning, in this Maimer Sheishas Yamim Teichel Matzas, that the Balatanya said, on Shvi Yishal Pesach, Tov Kov Samach Dalet, 1804. In order to understand this, what's the, the deeper meaning of this? Why is it that the seventh day is voluntary? And why does the Torah first say seven days and then six days, which means that it's the seventh day that teaches us about the first six days, he says, what is this concept of eating matzah? And he quotes the Zayar, which calls matzah the bread of faith. But why do we be called the bread of faith? Does it mean that it represents the faith of your? So it's just a symbolic commemoration of the amuna that the Jews once had? He says, no. For this, we have to understand the Pasuk, amuna, which means that there are the shepherds, it says, shepherd faith. There are shepherds who feed, who give, who help reveal emuna. Because really, the Jewish people are called emuna. Every Jew has emuna in his or her essence. It's part of our genetic, spiritual genetic inheritance, so to speak. But in order to make it more alive, more revealed... This is where we need somebody to, to shepherd, like you shepherd the flock, make sure they have all their food, all the sustenance, all the nutrients they need. Somebody to make sure that the nutrients of Amunah help us accentuate and actualize and be able to breathe and live with this gift of faith. And that's what the matzah does. It strengthens Amunah in the heart of the Jewish people. The second paragraph to understand the reason, the reason for what? Why is it that matzah strengthens Amun? And what does it even mean? Not surprisingly, in the Baal Hatanya's vintage style, we got to go back to the basics. We got to go back to the beginning of everything, to Piratius. Every Mayim, he always goes back to the beginning, to the beginning. What is the source of Amuna? What is Amuna? What does it mean to believe? Why do we call it Amuna? Faith. There is a conception, and it's often used, the term is used, blind faith, which means faith requires a certain component of blindness. If my eyes are open, how can I have faith? If my eyes are open, 
I want to discern truth from falsehood. I want to discriminate. I want to dissect. I want to analyze. I want to categorize. Why am I believing? So faith, they say it's blind faith. Or people say, I'm not ready for the leap of faith. In other words, faith is a leap. Is that why it's called faith? Because it's irrational? Something that's rational, something that I can explain, I don't have to believe. I don't have to believe that now is daytime, nor do I have to believe that the earth is round. I mean, I may believe you if I never did the research myself, but uh, you could uh, look at pictures that were, uh, that were taken from out of space, that were taken from, uh, from, outside, from those who have, who have left the environment of the earth, and you could see that it's round. I mean, unless you believe it was all made in Photoshop, so then you do have to believe it. But I'm saying the point is you don't have to believe certain things. You don't have to believe that I'm speaking to you now, <laughs> right? So what is this concept of a mono? Why do we call it a mono? Why do we call it fake? Does it mean it's not rational? What exactly does it mean? So some would say, and this is brought in Svar, I believe in the Sefer HaIkrim by Rabbi Yosef Albo, one of the greatest Jewish philosophers who lived in the 14th century, and he argued with the Rambam. The Rambam held that there are, there are the 13 principles of faith. And he said, no, there are three principles of faith. Only three. But the Ikrim writes, and it's also in other svarim, that the reason we call it a muna is because ultimately, if I could see something with my eyes, then I don't have to call that belief faith. The fact that I'm speaking to you, the fact that this is a, a little schmato, that this is a tie or this is a mouse, or this is a pad, <laughs> right? I could see it with my eyes. I mean, yes, I could be suffering from optical illusions, and some of us have optical illusions, but generally speaking, if your eyesight is working, Baruch Hashem, you don't have to believe it, you see it. You see it. What do they say? Seeing is the best form of believing. Since some of the fundamentals of Judaism, even if they can be proven and explained rationally, at least to a significant degree, but since it's something that I don't see with my eyes, I I can't remember standing at Mount Sinai, I don't see God with my physical eyes, or in the laboratory, so it's called a muna, because there's a certain, a certain maybe maturity, or sophistication, or courage, or, or commitment that's necessary in the development of this process. So that's obviously true, but here in this mind, the Balatanya is going to take it one step deeper. What is a muna? What is the shayrish of a muna? He makes Eve. The Pasik says, all oh, the famous Pasik, the opening of the Ten Commandments, Hashem opens up the Aseris Hatibis revelation at Sinai in Parshas Yisrael. Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who has taken you out of Egypt. This is the opening of the revelation at Mahar Sinai, at Sinai. I am your God who took you out of Egypt via Dua Kushis Amafarshim. On this, there's the famous question of the commentators. Why does Hashem not specify a miracle that is even greater than the miracle of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? Vuhu Asher Bores Hashemayim Namely, that he created heaven and earth. In other words, this moment when Hashem is introducing himself to the Jewish people, giving them, so to speak, his resume, if you will, his curriculum vitae, 
says, Anoichi Hashem Elokecha Asheritzeisicha Meeritz Mitznayim Mebeisavod. I am your Lord, the God, who has taken you out of Egypt from a house of bondage. And he continues, According to the Rambam, in the beginning of Mishnah Torah, Hilchas Yisodi Torah, the fundamental Torah, chapter 1, he says that the knowledge and the awareness of God's existence is a mitzvah. That's how the Rambam begins his entire magnum opus, Mishnah Torah, Yisoida Yisoida is Vamud Hachachmas, Leida Sheyesha Motzer Yish, Vuhumam Tsi Kol Nimtsa, Vuholanim Tsayim Shemaim of Aritzamasha Binam, Lenim Tsualama Mitasi Motzer. The foundation of foundations and the pillar of wisdom is to know that there is a primary being. And this being is the source who brings into existence every existence and every existence from heaven and earth and everything in between has not emerged only from the truth of his existence. And the Rambam continues developing this. And in Halacha 6, Halacha 5, he says, Knowing this, he doesn't say believing this, knowing this is a positive mitzvah. It's a mitzvah say. It's one of the 630 mitzvahs according to the Rambam. Because it says, God is saying, this is his first commandment. The first of us said, just like respect your father and mother, don't kill, don't steal, keep Shabbos, don't testify falsely, don't covet, don't commit adultery. The first one of the Ten Commandments is what? I want you to know that I'm God. So Hashem is introducing himself, so to speak. Shouldn't he go back to the basics? I'm the one who created heaven and earth. That's even more impressive than going out of Mitzrayim. And he explains why. Should I benissim the Mitzrayim or Iraqi Yesh Not to uh, underestimate or minimize the miracles of the exodus of Egypt, but it was basically a development from one state of being into another state of being. The first plague is certainly supernatural for all the waters in Egypt to be transformed into blood. So water was transformed into blood. Or frogs suddenly emerged over all of Egypt. Or lice. And so, so on and so forth, the continuation of the plagues. The very fact that Egypt was brought to its knees and this tyranny was subject, this tyranny was ultimately weakened to the point that the same Pharaoh would let the people go. From no, 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 I will not let you go. It's like, get out of my country. Certainly extraordinary, miraculous, supernatural. But it's changing one state into another state. It's called the Yesh Miesh. But you can't compare this to the creation of the cosmos. This is something from nothing. How do you compare the two? So when Hashem is introducing Himself to the Jewish people, I am God. You want to know what God is? Yes, I've taken you out of Egypt. But even greater than that is, I created heaven and earth. Taking you out of Egypt is certainly a wonderful thing, an extraordinary thing. Jews were very grateful for it. We're still grateful for it. As we say in the beginning of the Haggadah, in the opening of the Haggadah, if he wouldn't have taken us out, we may have still been there. Or been slaves in some form or fashion. But you still can't compare it to the very creation from nothing came something. Literally from nothing came a something. Think about that. This is the question that the Mepharshim asked. Now this happens to be a very ancient question among the commentators, the Evan Ezra, Rabbeinu Avram Ibn Ezra, who was the great 12th century Spanish linguist, astronomer, 
scientist, commentator, sage, poet, asks this question in Parshas Yisrael. The Kuzari, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, in this famous philosophical, timeless classic, Sefer HaKuzari, asks this question. In fact, Evan Ezra quotes it in the name of Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, because the Kuzari asks this question. It's quoted by the Ramban. The question is discussed in Tur, Mizrahi, Gurari, Abarbanel, Maharal. In footnote number 12, if you look at footnote number 12, he gives the wonderful, all the references in the footnote to all the commentators who asked this question. Different answers have been given. Here is the Alter Rebbe's, here is the answer of the Balatanya. The explanation is the Be'emes. Some say, some say, the basic answer, that the exodus of Egypt was personal. And it's what they just experienced. Of course, creation of heaven and earth may be greater, but this was personal. It was their personal moment with God, so to speak. That's a great answer. Others talk about the fact that creation of the world could still put God in the category of something impersonal. You know, he created this amazing, amazing world. Does he care about it? Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim means he didn't only create the world, but he takes personal, if I could use the word personal, he takes intimate and individual interest in the fears of mankind. That when one nation is oppressing another nation, when one nation is subjugating and torturing and trying to commit genocide in another nation, the creator of the world takes that as a, as a deeply disturbing and horrific offense and he gets involved and makes that statement. That's what God is saying. I care about the fears of mankind. These are all classic answers that were given by Mepharshim. And here, the Alter Rebbe takes it again one step deeper. The explanation is the Be'emes, his Havus Hashemayim Va'aretz, Me'ayin Liyesh, Eins and Nechshav Lepelekla, Lagabe Atzmus Hamatzalis Baruch. Creation of the world, no question, trumps every other miracle that happens in history. The only reason it does not is because in our mind we take it for granted. We are so used to existence that we cannot imagine what it means not to exist, right? So we take it for granted. But if you really take the time and the mental space to reflect on what on the miracle of Bria, on the, on the very act of creation, on every single level, the cosmos, the planet, the details of the planet, an individual organism, an individual plant, a tree, bush, insect, reptile, mammal, fish, bird, animal, homo sapien human being, an individual cell, the act of creation, both if you talk about it in a general sense or an individual sense, a particular creation, is, is, is the greatest miracle ever hands down. And the interesting thing, of course, is, and I should mention this, you know, for many generations, there was at least, uh, there were at least many, many philosophers, begins with already Aristotle, who maintained that the world was always here. The world didn't need a creator because it was always here. It's particularly in our generation 
where the theory of the Big Bang has been embraced by most scientists, and that revolutionized our understanding of cosmology, first and foremost in the fact that the universe has a beginning. That timeless word with which the Torah begins, beratious, there is something called a beginning. Beratious barilakim as a There's a beginning. There's a beginning for matter. There's a beginning for space. There's a beginning for time. The Big Bang explosion, which ultimately develops into the universe that we know, the galaxies and the planets and our planet, there is a beginning, a moment of Beratius. That's extraordinary. Something happened. And the question is, what caused that? How did that beginning happen? How did that seminal point, prebiotic soup or chalant, it exploded? Where did that come from, that point? Where does that Beratius come from? You say, well, that was always there. So why did the explosion happen supposedly 13.8 billion years ago if it was always here? Well, it was too much pressure. But if it's here infinitely, so it was too much pressure, so then it should have exploded uh, billions of years before. Besides, time was created. Stephen Hawkins proved many scientists, time was created with the Big Bang. There was no before. So what happened suddenly? So even in modern science, these are troubling questions that many people like to ignore. We know how it all... Science explains everything, really. Science today only creates much deeper and larger questions about the genesis of it all. If there's a Beratius, where did that Beratius come from? Why suddenly? How? How out of nothing comes something? What triggered that? That's a serious question. How out of nothing comes something? Never mind if you analyze what happens a moment after the Big Bang, how from this explosion a universe is formed. How fine-tuned that explosion had to be, because if it would expand a little faster, we would be reduced into dust. And if it would expand a little slower, we would experience what they call the Great Crunch and become toast. And that fine-tuning is not a little small fine-tuning by a few seconds. You're talking about fine-tuning that is so exact and so improbable mathematically that it staggers the imagination to believe that such a thing can happen randomly, especially it didn't have to happen once. There are so many constants, so many constants to allow for an existence of a universe and for life on the planet that the fine-tuning here is beyond incredible. That's not our topic today, but it's important to emphasize this. That when you speak about Bria's Shemayim Va'aretz, it's you're looking for a miracle, look in the mirror. Look at an ant. The fact that, and then our planet, this is the cosmos, the fact that our planet supports life. What has to happen for that? Despite all of this, despite all of this, Dalt Rebbe now goes one step further. And he says, that the creation of heaven and earth from nothing to something when you're talking about the essence of the ma'atzil atzmos means the essence ma'atzil in Hebrew is the emanator or the source of atzilus, ma'atzil which means the one who is responsible for all the emanation of his light, of his energy to create the worlds 
So he says, ultimately, it's not so wondrous relative to him. What do we mean? Ki it's known. The entire evolution of all of the Natsalim, Natsalim is all of the manifestations of divine energy, and of all the created beings, are essentially a manifestation of what we call divine speech. As the Pasuk says in Tehillim, Tehillim, Lamed Gimel, Bidvar Hashem Shamayim Nasu. Heavens were created through God's utterance, God's words, of Ruach Piv, called Svam. Or as the Mishnah says, Basara Mamaris Nevrelem Hashem created the world through ten utterances. In other words, it's identified as divine speech. The next page. We know the concept of speech down here below. When we use the word speech, it's metaphoric, it's allegorical. Speech, words, represent a certain revelation and manifestation of a person's personality, wisdom, inner thoughts, inner emotions, right? I communicate my ideas, I communicate my feelings, I communicate what is going on inside of me. But you're not going to say that your word captures your full essence. It's a certain revelation and a manifestation of a certain aspect of what the person is experiencing. The same is true when it comes to the Dibur Ha'elyon, the divine speech of Hashem as a creator. Though this is only a Gilui, it's a certain revelation of something that was previously concealed in God's essence, Vahainu, this is called Inyan Midas Malchus what we sometimes call the attribute of his Malchus. Malchus is defined in Zayhar as the quality of speech, of communication. Which is the source of the entire life force of all the worlds. All the worlds are basically an embodiment and are vivified and animated by the divine words, by the divine speech. To give a metaphor, from the kingship of a human being, a human king of flesh and blood, the subject of the king, what they're experiencing is an expression of the royalty of the, of the monarch, but not his essence. Many of them may have never even seen him. Many of them don't have a personal relationship with him, don't know who he is at his core. But his malchus rules the country. His kingship rules the country. This is a metaphor. Avolagdu. Yeah. Is that the Pasuk Ba'asher Dvar Melech Shiltain? Yeah, that's what he means. The Pasuk says Ba'asher Dvar Melech Shiltain, which means it's the word of the king that rules. That's how the king rules, through his words, through his dibur. As we say in Ashrei every morning, Gadol Hashem Omohulal Me'oid V'ligdulosoy Ein Cheker. God is great. He's excessively extolled. His greatness has no cheker, which literally means 
has no inquiry. What does it mean has no inquiry? There's no way to investigate it and inquire it and capture it and explain it. The way it is in his essence. Everything that we see in creation is certainly a manifestation of Hashem, but it's only a drop in the bucket. Imagine if you ask me to show you the Atlantic Ocean. You have heard of the Atlantic Ocean. So I go and I fill up a cup of water from the Atlantic and I show you this cup of water and I say, here, this is the Atlantic Ocean. It's humorous, right? I didn't show you the Atlantic Ocean. No, I did. This water comes from the Atlantic Ocean. It certainly does. (laughs) But it doesn't capture anything of the magnitude, the grandness, the beauty, the largeness, the depth, the width, the length, and the massiveness of the ocean. When you come to sea and you see the Atlantic Ocean, I remember I was once on a cruise in the midst of the Atlantic. It was the middle of the night and the boat was going very fast and I was like two in the morning and I went out to the deck, you know, and you're like, and you look at the ocean and you're like, mmm. I mean, my, uh, my mind right away went to the scenes of the Titanic. <laughs> a night to remember. 19, uh, 1912, April, after Pesach. But, you, you know, you, you see the magnitude of it. And even then, what did I see? I just saw that which I was able to see in that particular region where we were that night. You see the whole ocean. But when I take one cup of water, I showed you what's called a tipam and ayam. I showed, it's true, it comes from the ocean, no question. And you know what? One cup of water is incredible. <laughs> one droplet of water is incredible. How many molecules, how many atoms are necessary in order to be able to create any tiny piece of matter, even one drop of water? That's all part of the, of the miracle of creation. But certainly you can't say that this captures the essence of the ocean. Or like the ray of the sun doesn't capture the solar core. Right, The ray of the sun is now coming into my home. Baruch Hashem, it's beautiful. But thank God the sun itself is not coming into my home because that would be the end of this class. So similarly, these are the examples he's giving. That the whole world is a divine word. It's divine speech. It's divine energy. But what is expressed here? What is expressed is a certain limited, harnessed, mitigated, uh, filtered, condensed, and contracted energy that creates the whole world. V'amnam, it's true. Since Hashem is infinite, So therefore, even the light that He emanates, the rays, so to speak, are also infinite. Because your emanation is always a reflection of who you are. Somebody's inner power is going to be expressed in their work, even if their work doesn't capture all of their capabilities and all of their creative powers. But whatever they're expressing is going to be a certain reflection of who they are in the inside. So even the revealed ray, which you call divine speech, which true, thank you. You could say hi. You could say hi to everybody. So even 
the revealed ray, which is Hashem's Dibur, Hashem's speech. We know from the writings of the great Kabbalist, the Arizal, Adoineinu Rabbeinu Yitzchak Zechreinu Levracha, Rabbeinu Yitzchak Ashkenazi, known as the Arizal, who lived in Egypt and came to Tzvas for two years and passed away on the 5th of Av of the year 1572. Hey Allah from Shin Lamed Beis and is buried in Tzvas and the writings of the Arizal. We know that even just the energy is Nespashta is extended ad infinitum. Shehinun Allah from Yoivlis. The Arizal talks about the duration of existence as being 50,000 jubilees. 50,000 Yoivlis. We often speak about the 6,000 years followed by a 7th millennium. The Arizal then speaks about 50,000 jubilees. Because the cosmos and the planet ascends and then further ascends. The states of consciousness are infinite. But it's all an expression of that one midah, that one word of malchus. You're asking, first he says it's Adain Kate, it's infinite, and then he gives the, the Nun Allah from Yoivlis. That's what you're saying. It's an interesting question. It's, it's a muscle. I have to think about it. It could be what he means is, what Darizal is, what, what he's trying to say is, he's not here focused on the number. He's focused on the fact even if you look at the wisdom in creation, it may be a drop of the Atlantic, that's true. But that drop has infinite wisdom in it. In other words, that drop you can analyze and analyze and analyze, and furthermore, because there is so much there, and there's so much infinite growth that's available there, because as the sun is infinite, even an individual ray also has infinity, because it's ultimately expressing the sun. Nonetheless, despite that, so he gives an example of that reason. I don't think he's focused so much on the number. He's just giving an example. You know, we look at the world, right? How much is the span of our lives? So you live 100 years, 120 years. They say soon they're going to double the lifespan. So you live 160 years. That means you're out of a job for 100 years, right? If you retire at 65, so think about that. But in any case... So what do we know about life? You know, we know our 50 years, 100 years. We read a little history, so we know a little back. We speculate about the future. But then you go back 100 years, 1,000 years, right? 50,000 years. Nun alofim, and then 50,000 years times 50. In other words, that the span of existence, even existence the way we define it and know it, is so beyond our imagination. It's so mind-staggering. I believe that's his point. So, well, so, so, so to conclude the theme of this, of this chapter, of this Perik Bay's this chapter, is that creation of heaven and earth is amazing. <laughs> it's the most amazing thing we can imagine. I think it was Mark Twain who said when God created the Grand Canyon, he did not create the adjectives with which to describe it. So if I may use that, that phrase and say... When God created the world, he didn't give us the adjectives with which to describe it. But if you take the time and you focus on it, 
it is the singular greatest miracle, much greater than the splitting of the sea, much greater than any other miracle. Again, we take it for granted because we wake up in the morning, we're breathing, we expect the earth to be solid ground that we could step on it. But nothing should be expected. Nothing of it makes sense rationally. We say well, the laws of nature, as though that explains something. It's the laws of nature. Gravity, of course, it's supposed to be that way. We have to appreciate the fact of how much we don't appreciate anything. You know, we look at our system. It's working. I'm speaking now. I just lifted my hands. Oh, that's simple. Really? It's simple? It's simple that 70 trillion cells are functioning in your body in perfect harmony and symmetry and everyone exact knows exactly what to do and it's perfect of how that two, three-pound brain is governing everything and making millions of decisions every millisecond and you have a hundred billion neural, neural neurons each interconnected. Again, we take all of these things for granted, but, but there's not a moment of life that should not be experienced as a miracle. If I can quote Albert Einstein who once said, Either nothing is a miracle or everything is a miracle. Or as the Medrash says, It says at the end of Tehillim, chapter 150, we say it every morning, every soul should praise God. So the Medrash says, Neshama comes to the word Neshima. Every breath, for every breath one ought to celebrate, to start dancing. Every breath you take, Deserves a song. Rabbi you're here? You went to dance, I hope, yeah? Every breath you take deserves a song. So despite all of this, the Alter Rebbe says, but let's go one step deeper, if we may. And when I, 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 I'm giving these disclaimers, because as we go the one step deeper, don't forget the basics. <laughs> Sometimes you go deeper and deeper, you forget the basics. That this miracle trumps every other miracle. But he says, but then think about it from the divine perspective. From the divine perspective, the whole world is a speech. It's a few words that Hashem utters. It comes from Him. It expresses something of Him, but it does not reflect the core. Again, it's like the, the, the ray of the sun relative to the solar core. It's like a few words that you say, they capture something of you, no question. But how much do I know of you from listening to a few words of yours? So the Alter Rebbe says, V'hine yadua. And this is the beginning of the explanation why Anoichi Hashem focuses on Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, not creation, as we will see. V'hine yadua. It's known... This is now a fascinating piece. Also, which means the pious ones from among the nations, they believe and they comprehend what words. They appreciate the kaya chapoyel benifal, which means the power that activates everything that exists within every reality. Kaya chapoyel means the power of the activator. Benifalim is in all of those things that are existing and being activated. In other words, the pious ones from among the nations of the world. This is not a gift that only Jews have. Even Gentiles, goyim, 
good one, good people. Rabbi, you were discussing yesterday, uh, two, a few days ago, your relationships growing up. Good people. Chassidio Masailam means pious, fine, mention, who are not Jewish. And many of them have a real appreciation. This is Alter Rebbe's words. They have a real appreciation and a hasaga, a comprehension that there is divine energy that creates the world. It made the world from nothing into something. This is a real, a real understanding. A real understanding of the Kaya Chapayel Elekibanifo. That the world is a manifestation and an embodiment of Hashem's energy, of divine life and vitality that brought everything into existence from nothingness into somethingness. Ex nihilo in the Latin. Furthermore, uktsas mehem yispalu And some of them are affected by this emotionally. And it causes them to live a life in which they're careful not to do something immoral. Not to... Huh? Interesting, huh? What do you say? It's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying that this is messianic. Every person has their place in the world, as you say. And every person has their mission. And it's not about being better or being worse. It's about being faithful to your unique vocation. It's within people themselves. Every person has their unique role to play. Look at a body. Look at an organism. Every limb has a unique contribution to make. And in its own way, it's indispensable to the divine cosmic symphony. So the Jew needs to be a Jew. We have no obligation in Judaism to proselytize a non-Jew and force him to become Jewish. Judaism never had that Slogan, there is no salvation outside the church, as another religion maintained. The Rambam writes in Hilchis Malachim, Chassidi Umas Ha'olam, Yeshlem Chelik Lo'olam Haba. The pious ones from among the nations have a portion of the world to come. They have their Ganeidin, they have their Olam Haba. I saw there's one of the Kabbalists, the Avoidus HaKodesh, Rabbi Meir ben Gabai, 14th century Kabbalist, says, the same is true with the Mashiach world. He says even even the resurrection, he applies to Chassidei Yom is applicable to them. So the Alter Rebbe says, so Chassidei Yom can also appreciate the the divine energy and power that lives within every being creating it. And furthermore, for some of them, it's not just philosophy. It's not just a nice idea. I maybe read about it or heard about it. He says some of them are affected by it. Yispalumiza. means they're moved by it. And not just moved emotionally, but it affects their behavior. They will not do something wrong. They may hide a Jew during the Holocaust. They may hide an innocent person from the horrors being inflicted on this person. This may give them red lines in life in terms of loyalty and honesty and integrity, fidelity, commitment to a relationship, commitment to a marriage, commitment to truth, to integrity, to kindness. Dr. Rebbe says, yeah, true. We wish that this would be the universal 
choice of every person, that we're waiting for the Geula to come, but he says it's a phenomenon that we see. Now you do have to understand that the person saying this, Maimir in 1804, suffered an enormous amount from people living in his area. He suffered also from Jews, but he was arrested and persecuted quite mercilessly, even though he was exonerated at the end. But Alter Rebbe says, and he has met, you know, in prison, he has had numerous conversations with some of the great uh, philosophers and thinkers in Petersburg, especially connected to the Tsarist regime. So the Alter Rebbe says, there, there are Hasidi Yom who live this way. V'im Kain, if so, here's the question. Mazu what is the Muna that was designated uniquely for the Jewish people? What is it? Comes back to the question of Amuna. If Amuna is about believing that there is a God, this is the property, this is the right, this is the inheritance of all mankind. Beautiful words. Amuna is not a Jewish thing. In fact, it's one of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noyach. Amuna is not a, not a Jewish thing. You don't have to be a Jew to be a mime, and that's his point. If you're real, if you're open, if you don't allow confirmation bias to dictate your life, if you are inquisitive, if you try to emancipate yourself from preconceived notions, if you're not here to justify instincts, every instinct and craving and proclivity, and if I really have the ability to be curious and to help myself immense and help emancipate myself from preconceived notions and indoctrinations, he says, many people, Jews and non-Jews, can develop a profound emuna, a profound awareness of the divine, and one that will move their mind, stir their heart, and direct their actions. What then is the emuna that was designated for Knesset Yisrael? What is it? Ooh, now we'll understand why when God introduces himself to the Jews, he doesn't say, You know why? That's not only Mount Sinai for the Jews, that's for every person. I am your God who created heaven and earth. That's a relationship with every single person. Here he's speaking about, I am your God. The relationship with Knesset Yisrael, what is this emunah? Omnama in Yinhu. Explanation in this is the imloi tia hais pilus rakmeis bainus yeshmeyayin bulvad loy lazois hushpalah nefeshalikis. If one is moved merely by contemplating on and meditating on creation, something from nothing, not for this purpose, was the divine soul humbled and sent down into this world. Because again, this is something that the pious ones among the Gentiles can recognize the miracle of creation, something from nothing. Not for this did God dispatch the nefesh kiss, the godly consciousness and soul that vibrates within every Jew. Not for this purpose. This is a muna that even a good guy, a solid guy, a Gentile, must and could have. Vairi Nema, the Torah says, in Veschan and Moshe tells the Jewish people, Atahorei Saladas ki Hashem hu elikim, ein oid melvadoi vizoisi hemun. 
the moon for which the Nefesh kiss comes down into the world, to create the reality of a Jew is what Moshe says. You have shown us to know that Hashem Hu Elikim ain't Oid Mulvadai. There is nothing outside of him. This is why the Nefesh kiss came down. The reality of are incredible words. is basically, it's everything we talk about so often, that in every nifl, in every created being, there's a Koyach I once read an article from a professor, a neuroscientist, professor of neurology in McGill University, Dr. Jacob Brower. And uh, he spoke about his first exposure to a chassid. It was in Boston. I believe he was a Harvard medical student. And he came into a shul and he saw a Chabad chassid who was davening. And he would daven for many long hours. It was Shabbos morning and he had his talus over his shoulders thinking. He was thinking chassidus. When davening was over, he left shul and he saw the chassid in the same position, same posture, talus over his shoulder, still thinking chassidus. So he had to get to know him. So in their first conversation, this chassid looks at him and says, what are you searching for? What are you searching for in life? He was stumped. How do you answer that question? So this chassid tells him, I know what you're searching for. You're searching to see the kayach apayel benifel. That's what you're searching for. You're trying to look and find the kayach apayel benifel. And this began a transformative journey for him. You want to find the divine energy that vibrates through everything. Through every flake of snow and every drop of rain, every blade of grass and every neuron and heartbeat and molecule and atom and cell. You want to find the kaya chapayel benifel, the divine activating force that is that constitutes the DNA of all creation. That kaya chapayel benifel says the Alter Rebbe here is not only a Jewish thing; it's universal on many levels. It defines creation. And you want to know something? He says kaya chapayel benifel leyitachin likris emuna. We wouldn't even call this emuna ki ene bas or gamkin yasigu. Because even the eyes of flesh, which means the mind's eye and the physical person, if he or she is ruthlessly honest and committed to truth and nothing but the truth and only the truth, you will be able to discover that there's a kayach hapal You don't need faith for this. You don't need to believe. If you really analyze the world and you really want to understand, you will be compelled to reach the conclusion that there is, that our world is spiritual energy, that matter is a derivative of consciousness. True, it's not so simple. Since the divine soul isn't clothed in sackcloth, you remember when Mardechai puts on sackcloth, which eclipses you when you're wearing a sack, Nobody could see you. Since the divine soul is dressed up in sackcloth of klipas noiga, which means there are shells, there are husks that eclipse vision. Shulchaymer hagufni, which is the coarse, brute material, 
So we have to meditate. We have to think about it. We have to learn about it. In order to remove the blindness of our physical eyes, which often look at the secondary and turn it into the primary. We look at the symptom and we turn it into the cause. We look at the outer layer and we make that the inner most important layer. And as a result of that, our blindness does not allow us to see how the yesh is completely subsumed and completely nullified to the ayin. What is ayin? Ayin means nothingness. What does ayin really mean? No thingness. You hear that, Abdaniel? No thingness. What does it mean, no thingness? Godliness is not called a thing. It's not something I grasp with my hand or with my nose, or with my ears, or with my eyes, or with my taste, my mouth. It's an ayin, it's no thingness. But I don't see it, I don't touch it. It's not tangible. The table I touch. So the yesh I can relate to, the ayin I can't relate to. So I say it doesn't exist, it's nothing. Because it's no thingness, so it becomes nothing. But really, it's the core source of everything. Imagine somebody says, viruses don't exist because I never saw them. What would you tell them? How intelligent is that statement? Viruses don't exist, I never saw them. The table exists, this exists, a virus doesn't exist, germs don't exist, bacteria don't, doesn't exist, uh, electricity. electricity for sure doesn't exist, electrons exist, you're crazy? And what are we going to tell them? These things that you don't see are much more powerful than anything else that you do see. <laughs> Absolutely. What you're, what you're pointing out is brilliantly accurate. And that is that this is missing in the scientific community where everything is perceived as just plain dumb matter. When really all of matter is a derivative of consciousness. You talk about stress or you talk about anxiety, you talk about the inner state of the mind. It affects the body in ways that are indescribable. The impact is so powerful. Even when you talk about COVID, you often see the shallowness of scientists, how impoverished they are, because they may have brilliant, brilliant data, and they may be brilliant people, and analyzing the data, and analyzing the facts, but completely divorcing the yesh from the ayin. Besides those few doctors, the chassidei ha-doctors, as they say, chassidei ha-masailam, who see the kaya chapayal benifal. So the Alter Rebbe is telling us here, that even to reach the first place, the first state, which is goyesh ha how do you like that? Of You have to work on yourself. It's far from simple because we are blinded by the anxiety, by stress, by pressure, by the veneer, by the veneer of a world that eclipses the ayin. So imagine again, somebody says, electricity doesn't exist, atoms don't exist, cells don't exist. I don't see them. Sorry. We know today that what we don't see is much more powerful than what we see. In fact, here, here is the deal. The fact that you see it already means that it doesn't exist in such a real way. <laughs> That's the truth. If I could see it, which means my retinas, sensors absorbed it, 
and interpreted by my brain to be this picture, it already is a level of reality that is much more externalized and concretized to the point that my eye can grasp it and my brain can interpret it. Much deeper realities, more fundamental realities, you're actually not going to see. Not because they don't exist, because their existence is far profounder and far more impactful. Nobody ever saw, I never saw an atom, <laughs> but we know that they exist. But if you would have microscopic eyes, you would be living in a different world. So even within the scientific world, we understand that things that are invisible are often much more consequential. You think genes are important for life? You think DNA is important? You think chromosomes are important? None of this is visible. In fact, till the 50s, we did not know that DNA exists. We lived thousands of years. Just like till 150 years ago, the 1860s, we did not know about germs. Until the 1890s, we did not know about viruses. We blamed it on the devil. Or on some wells, the Jews poisoning wells of the Black Plague. The Jews poisoned the wells. But it doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means we're not sensitive. We don't have the tools to dissect reality. So the Alter Rebbe is saying what happens in our world is we can often be blind. And what does the blindness consist of? It consists of the fact that we don't see we don't see that the yesh is tuffle, it's subservient to the ayin. The yesh is tuffle to the iker, which is the ayin. We don't see that. We get lost in the yesh rather than searching and seeing the ayin in the yesh. The ayin in the yesh is the spirituality of matter, the consciousness of matter, the divinity of matter. And furthermore, the Alter Rebbe says that one understands that every single physical existing being is bottle. It's aligned and it's subservient and it's nullified relative to the spiritual divine power that brings it into existence. Now these are amazing words. What does it mean? It means if my eyes would be able to perceive reality, it would be exactly the other way around. I wouldn't even get, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even get, I wouldn't even take note of the Gashmi. The physical expression of it is such a minute fraction of what is really going on. It's just like, again, in science, I'm, I'm pounding on this table. And for me, this is just a solid piece of wood. But if my eyes would be more developed, I would see a whole universe inside this table. Millions, billions, trillions, 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 sectillions of atoms, even in one tiny little piece of matter. With electrons revolving around the nucleus of the atom in, in such speed and perfect, perfect symmetry and harmony, there's a whole world going on. But I don't see that world. So what do I see? I see the externality. I see the external aspect of the world that is concrete, that is tangible. So even within the scientific world itself, we know that there are levels of yesh that we completely don't relate to, and that the outer level of yesh is completely bottle. It's completely subsumed. And it's just, 
one aspect of the manifestation of the inner world that my eyes can pick up based on my limitations. That's it. I can see things that are so small. Do you know that 99.9% of an atom is empty space? Which means basically that all of the matter of our planet you could fit in to a carry-on suitcase. Do you know that? And that's the truth of reality. But my eyes can't make peace with that truth. So therefore I see everything as being matter when really most of it is empty space. It's just too small for me to perceive. So my vision turns it into a solid piece of matter when it's really empty space. That's what I do. What is the truth, however? And you go to a deeper level, the truth is that that is just one way of it being expressed and manifested based on your tools of perception. If you go deeper... What is the 99% of empty space of the atom? What is it? It's Dvar Hashem, it's divine energy. And the yesh is only a manifestation of that ayin, that's what it is. But for this, you need training. You need to cultivate this consciousness. And for this, amazing words, for this, they instituted the whole system of davening. People wonder, why do we say it again and again, every day, we do all this, everyone about the Pesukah de Zimra, praising God excessively, we speak about God creating the world and being a master of all the creations of the world. We start off, you said it yesterday. How many times are you going to say, Hallelujah! You created this, and you created that, and you created that. What is this? Says the Alter Rebbe, you can't say it enough. The reason is because we naturally live in a world, in a life that eclipses our vision. Intuitively, we're not living in the real world. We're living in a bubble. We're living in a fake world. Every day, once again, I need to battle for transcendence. I need to wage battle for truth. I need to excavate MS. I need to remove that veil, that masach mavla, that veil, that blocks, that eclipses. I need to cleanse my doors of perception and free my brain from toxicity, from confusion, from uncertainty, from darkness. Until even your animal consciousness, which means your biological mind, can experience and appreciate that the yesh is only tafel, it's subservient to the ayin, which is the essence. The no-thingness is real. The thingness is just a manifestation, a poor, limited manifestation of that. To understand that the ayin is the essence and the root of all existence. The Zoyar says, based on Apostolic and Daniel, everything in his presence doesn't have separate significance. This is the focus of davening in order to be able to get in touch with the Goyesha Muna of Koya Chapoyel Benifal, it's still not the reason the Nefesh Elikis came down into the world. That's Shema Yisrael. We'll get to that soon. Yes, you wanted to ask something? Yes, the puzzle, which puzzle, I, I, I mean, Kula Kamiya, these are phrases in the Tanya a lot, but I, I didn't know it was based on the, the, the puzzle in Daniel, which is the puzzle. Yes, 
if you'll open up, they actually they they didn't they didn't uh, footnote it. So there's this expression Kula Kamei Kaloi Chashiv, which is from Zohar, Chelak Aleph Yud Aleph, footnote twenty eight. But that expression itself comes from Daniel. You're Daniel. You should know Daniel. You want me to know Daniel? That's your job. You have to know the prophets of your namesake. I don't remember. You can look it up easily. It's uh, it's easily accessible. But I'm glad that you're uh, I'm glad that you're uh, you're you're eager to know the source of all these phrases because many people just uh, many people just you know gloss over them. Question. First of all, if you look in today's comments on the yeshiva.net, somebody wrote a very, very moving comment about last last year, about uh, youth who leave Yiddishkeit. Those who were in the klal and then they leave the klal. Beautiful, amazing, amazing comment. It's a must-read. Okay, some would say that Amuna is beyond rationality. You have to take a giant blind leap of faith. I say on the contrary. It's the epitome of rationality to know, not believe, that our logical, rational brains can only go so far, each according to his ability, and moreover, that there are matters, concepts, and realities that are beyond the limits of our logic and rationality. It's quite rational and logical to know and realize, as a matter of fact, that the realms beyond our logical capabilities contain truths such as the existence of Australia, the existence of Hashem, etc. For me, that is rational. (laughs) Is creation really the biggest miracle? If the only difference between nature and miracle is frequency, if man came down every day until now, if if manna came down every day until now, and wheat grew only infrequently, the former would be called natural and the latter miraculous. And Hashem perhaps created creation once, though the Medrash says that he created many worlds and he destroyed them. So then creation is a miracle because it was only infrequent from our perspective, but occurred just once. But perhaps from the perspective of above and beyond creation, the symptom to enable a space of void in order to allow for creation is a greater miracle than creation. For God to create creation is huge, a one-time occurrence, and therefore miraculous from our point of view. But for God to create anything is no big deal. For the omnipotent, perhaps a bigger miracle is that he withdrew himself and created an empty space devoid of his infinity where he could create the world. That's maybe even a bigger miracle than the creation of the world. Well said. What does it mean that Amunah, did you get to the point that Amunah is beyond logic? If each person possesses varying levels of amounts of logic and rationality, that which is Amunah for one person, because it's above his rationality, may be logic for another person. If so, it behooves each and every person to exercise his logic and expand it, not to bodybuild and gym and develop huge muscles, but to mind build in the yeshiva and develop a huge mind. The more the mind is built up, the less reason there is to rely on anything being believed because it's in the realm of Amunah. If so, part of Avaid is to build up our logical minds, lessen the turf for Amunah until the point when the knowledge will cover the earth. So I believe that Amunah is relative and you could build up the muscles of your mind so that what was yesterday's Amunah becomes today's logic. Very, very good. The inner world of the seemingly inactive, inanimate world is extremely active. If so, even the dried up bones of those buried in the ground have atoms racing around each other. Otherwise, even those seemingly inanimate bones wouldn't exist. 
So these bones are alive, just like a rock is alive. So even the deceased whose bones remain in the ground are alive to a limited extent. And going to the grave can attach us to the person buried there. Is that why we go to the grave? That's one component. But also the soul, some, a part of the soul is connected to the place where the body is buried. So, so it's true what you're saying, but it goes even one step deeper. Beautiful ideas. Thank you everybody for sharing. I wish you a meaningful and inspiring day. A beautiful Shabbos HaChadosh of renewal. Please remember, I'm away next week, so Monday and Tuesday there's no class. We will resume this class Be'ezir Hashem next Thursday. I wish you all a beautiful day and send you love, light, and blessing. Yes, ask, ask. You can ask, ask. How far can you go? In knowing and consciousness of I, can you have consciousness of Yeah, with consci- how far can you go with consciousness? Yeah. You can go very, very far with consciousness. Can you go to Atsilu? Yeah. Like the Babakir Rebbe, or the great Rebbe, they would have gone all the way to Atsilu. It says, it says, the Balatanya writes that in Neshama, the soul of Moshe Rabbeinu, the soul of Rabshirim by Yechai. These were neshamas of Atsilas, which means their daily natural state of consciousness was the perspective of Atsilas. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, some souls are from Atsilas, some souls are Bria, some souls are Yitzir, some souls are Asiya. What does this mean? We all come from the same source. But the way the soul is manifested in this world, some souls operate with a consciousness of Atsilas on a regular basis. And some souls operate with a more diminished form of consciousness, and they have to work more on opening themselves themselves up to deeper layers of consciousness. So what's the basics of davening? What's the basis of davening? What did we learn? What's the exercise that we learned today? The basis of davening, we talk about the snow and the fire and the vapor and the animals, and the trees, and the insects. Why do we talk about this constantly? In all of Tzukah Zimmer, right? read through the Halalukas. What we're trying to help ourselves, it's not just saying words. It's cleansing my doors of perception. It's opening myself up every single day to remembering that I'm living in a spiritually organic, holistic, divine world. I'm not living in a brute ruthless, coarse, external, material world. I am living in a material world, but that very material world is pulsating with divine, infinite energy. And that means, first and foremost, you. First and foremost, me. The ability to be able to cleanse my own perceptions of how I see myself. I'm not just a piece of meat and potato. I'm not just a traumatized victim. I'm not just an angry, impulsive, impatient, petty, jealous predator. You like my adjectives? I'm not just that person. I may be, I may have all these stuff inside of me, but who am I? What am I really? I am an ambassador of infinity in the world. Infinity vibrates through me. That's what I am. That's who I am. That's who you are. So every person I come in contact with, my spouse, my child, my loved ones, strangers, people I see in the street, people I see on the subway, 
people I meet in the supermarket. It's the ability to be able to connect to the soul, to the soul of people, to the soul of matter. Even when I look at a bird, even when I look at a tree, even when I look at a squirrel or a groundhog or the beautiful deer roaming in my backyard right here. What am I looking at? I'm looking at God's world. Psuki de Zimra is there to, davening is there to sensitize us to the world we're living in. And therefore, once we do that in the morning, our whole day is different. Our paradigms are different. Our reference point is different. So those of you who got to go daven, go daven. <laughs> Have a wonderful day, my dear friends. Ah, chsidus. Chsidus. Yeah. Is there a, a chazal that says seeing is believing? Is that a chazal? I don't remember. I have to research it. The source of seeing is believing. If it's a, I don't know if this research. I, I know it's a saying, you know, in the world, but I wonder if it's from Hazal. Well, we're soon going to see what Yiddish Amunah is. Today we really dealt with Goyish Amunah, which is pretty deep. Yeah. <laughs> very, very quickly. I'm just learning at the moment the end of Morris Saita about Egla Rufa and the idea that if the uh, if, if even if the if the identity of the of the murderer of the hiring is known, even if, if even if you can't even if you don't know where the murderer is, just the fact that it's known that con- is that connected to this idea that consciousness itself changes the changes the halachic uh, reality. Yeah. So that's a halacha in Saita that if the identity of the one who killed the victim is known, even if he was not obtained, yes. it already changes it. Already changes it. Yes. So well, I, the Aegis wasn't even expressed in words. Right. Just, yeah. even, if the, if, even if there was no legal testimony yet in the court, nonetheless it already changes the status. And you're asking if that's a, 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 a manifestation of the idea that consciousness already changes the reality. I, I, th- I think there is a truth to that. Hold on one second. I, I certainly think there's a truth to that. And you see it in different halachas, how consciousness itself changes already the reality of things. In fact, in Derech Mitzvah Secha from the Tzamech Tzedek, there's a mitzvah, Tumas HaMetzorah, about a leper, and at the end he discusses a lot this point, the consciousness. Okay, Chavra. Thank you very much. Have a beautiful, beautiful day, everybody. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.